Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 8, verses 1 through 9. If you would please read the highlighted verses with me. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Chris, and good morning. My name is Brad, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I hope that if it's a, uh, one of your first times here that you felt, felt welcome at Grace Sacramento. Uh, we are we're in a season that Christians have called Eastertide, which is the, the season of the resurrection, and we've been uh, going through a series of sermons we are calling uh, Easter Song. What are we calling it? Uh, Easter songs. We're reading the Psalms, which is the songbook of the Bible. And this morning, Psalm 8, with this question right uh, in, the, in the middle of it. What is man? It's a question uh, there in verse 4. Uh, what is man? That sounds to me like a response to a Jeopardy clue. Right? You know that show where they allegedly give you the answer and then the contestants are supposed to give the question, but usually it comes out in some awkward way, right? The contestant rings the buzzer and they say, what is Wyoming? What kind of question is that? Right? What is Wyoming? How would you know how to answer that? Uh, and yet, here it is in verse 4, what is man? And I think any time the Bible asks a question, it's an indication that we should slow down and carefully consider because it's probably an important point. What is man? What would the, you know, what would the clue on the screen in Jeopardy be if that was the answer? Uh, it could be a response to a variety of, of Jeopardy clues, right? For instance, the male human sex as opposed to the female capable of fertilizing or fathering rather than mothering, uh, but not gestating or delivering offspring. Good answer. What is man? It's not the question that Psalm 8 is asking. To my relief a little bit, I think that sermon is coming at some point. It's not today. What is man? A carbon-based, warm-blooded species of mammal known as Homo sapien. Right, sharing 97% of its DNA with other similar primates. What is man? Also a good answer, but not the question that Psalm 8 is asking. Uh, what we didn't read this morning 
is uh, a preamble in Psalm 8. And uh, unlike uh, some of the headings in your Bible, uh, the preamble in Psalm 8 actually is in the original text, in the, in the Hebrew. It says there, and maybe it says in your Bible, to the choir master, according uh, to Giffith, it's a Psalm of David. The, the byline of Psalm 8 is, uh, is David, King David, maybe little shepherd boy David. We're not sure uh, when he allegedly would have written this, but uh, the idea or maybe the picture uh, that we're supposed to have in our, in our minds maybe is something like a young shepherd David done with chores for the day and the responsibilities of the day, and he's lying out amongst his sheep as a shepherd would do at night to watch over them under the starry night sky. Probably a, a night sky darker than any of us have ever seen as we live amongst so much light pollution and modernity, and yet probably uh, brilliant with stars and planets and the vastness of the universe, uh, so much uh, so, uh, probably more so than any of us have ever seen. And in that moment, uh, he's in the midst of a moment of what you would call awe. And he says, and he writes, when I look at your heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man? What is humanity? What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? The Hebrew, uh, like many languages, can use the uh, masculine plural to refer to all of us, although that's uh, not politically correct in our time. Uh, G, uh, David is not asking uh, about what the ingredients are for our bodies. And I don't think that he is laying on the hill uh, working out his sexual identity either. Uh, in a moment of truly being overwhelmed by his own puniness, he's asking, what is our purpose? What's our place in the vastness of the universe that God has created? And it's not just a religious question, it's an essential question, because how you, answer that, uh, how you answer that question not only lays the foundation for how you will determine to spend the minutes of the life that you've been given in this world, but it has everything to do with how you will end up understanding the answers to other critical questions like, why does it feel like something has gone wrong in the world? What is there that can be done about it? It's a question that has been wrestled with throughout history and not just by theologians, right? It's been wrestled with by sociologists and artists and psychologists and philosophers and storytellers and scientists and game show contestants since the beginning. And it's a question that's wrestled with because it affects every aspect of living. And so it's no wonder that it's even difficult to ask in a way that's balanced enough not to be offensive or to be misunderstood by one group or another. Psalm 8, like the scriptures as a whole, is incredibly comprehensive. And when I use that, I'll give you my definition of comprehensive. What I mean by that is that it's not only communicating something, uh, but it's, it's saying something, but it's also demonstrating or embodying that thing that it is trying to communicate with us. And I think that's one of the amazing things that poetry or a song 
can do uh, better sometimes than any other genre. So it's important to remember as we read the Psalms that we're interpreting art. Uh, we're interpreting poetry, not prose and not instruction. Let me show you what I mean about Psalm 8. Uh, it, while it would seem that the purpose of Psalm 8 it has something to do with wrestling with this question, right? What is the purpose of humanity? Psalm 8, from start to finish, is God-centric. It starts and ends with this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then it goes on from there to talk not about humanity, but about God. You have set your glory in the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes, you have established strength. Your fingers, you are mindful of humanity. You have made him lower than angels. You have given him dominion. You put all things under his feet. You, 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 not me, not us. We would like to believe, uh, and we often would like to read, come to the Bible and read it as if it's a book about humanity looking for reason and purpose in the world and then finding or maybe even inventing or articulating the idea of God. But the Bible is actually a book that begins with God in the beginning and ends with God in the end. And all of the history of humanity and the purpose that we have in salvation itself finds itself caught up in the middle someplace in this story about who God is and what he has done. And so Psalm 8 reads from the, at the beginning, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, and ends with, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, and we'll find our purpose somewhere in the context of that reality. And so this morning, I want to I ask that big Psalm 8 question, what is man? And we'll follow its example, the, the example that Psalm 8 gives us. We'll look back at what God was doing in the beginning of the scripture and try to understand how Psalm 8, what Psalm 8 is saying about uh, what is humanity's dignity? What is humanity's honor and purpose? And then we'll wrestle with how Psalm 8 points out what is humanity's crisis? And then we'll look forward into the New Testament that actually quotes Psalm 8 and, and finds there a description pointing to Jesus as humanity's fulfillment. And so this morning, uh, just three movements what is humanity's dignity? What is humanity's crisis? And what is humanity fulfilled? When we read verses 5 and 6, it says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. It's almost explicitly an invitation. It's an instruction uh, to go and look at the story of God's creation in Genesis. And you can turn there if you have a Bible to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we don't often instruct people to turn, but I figured everybody could feel successful today. Because you just go to the first place you find scripture. It's right at the beginning. So, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and to 28. It says there, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. 
male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God blessed, be fruitful, have dominion. It's a, a breathtaking description of the responsibility and honor that humanity has been given by God, which is actually in contrast to the posture or the feeling that David was having as he looked out over the stars and felt little and puny. Uh, he's feeling tiny and overwhelmed by the vastness of uh, creation and the majesty of the created world. And, and David asks, what is man? Who am I? But the psalm reminds him and he reminds us that in creation, humanity was made steward of all of this. Made caretakers and cultivators of all that God had made. Installed by God, responsible to him in his creation for that purpose. Blessed to be fruitful and have dominion. And uh, even when you look out into the world and uh, listen to voices that would never agree that there is a God, you can hear uh, agreement with this understanding of humanity. For instance, if Charles Darwin was on Jeopardy, he's a contestant, and the question is, what is man? He would say, and I quote, Man has become, even in his rudest state, the most dominant animal that has ever appeared on earth. We have dominion. If Vice President Gore, former Vice President Gore, was a contestant on Jeopardy, question is, what is man? He would say, and I quote, we are operating this planet like a business. The actual whole quote is, we are operating this planet like a business in liquidation. He understands that we are stewards of creation. Another preacher, a guy named Dick Lucas, says, if this responsibility is ours, dominion and stewardship, does it mean, for example, that the pleasant and popular pastime of blaming God when things go wrong in the world, wars, and famine, terrors, and tragedies, does it mean that we human beings, homo sapiens, may have to accept our responsibility instead? Atheist, astrophysicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson, contestant on Jeopardy. The question is, what is man? Or, if you like this better, Neil deGrasse Tyson laying next to David under the stars, right? What is man? He would say, the very molecules that make up your body, the atoms that construct the molecules are traceable to the centers of high mass stars that exploded their chemically rich guts into the galaxy so that we are all connected to each other biologically, to the earth chemically, and to the rest of the universe, atomically? Good answer. But then he goes on. 
And he says, that's kind of cool, which I agree. It's really cool. He says, that makes me smile, and it actually makes me feel quite large at the end of that. And he says, and uh, uh, to put it in context, I'll say, he says, because in the end, we're just atomic star barf at our core. He says, in life, we must create our own love. We must manufacture our own meaning. We must generate our own motivation. What is humanity's crisis? This is it. This is it. You see, while Genesis 1 and Psalm 8 endow humanity with great honor and responsibility, place us just a little lower than heavenly beings, the scripture doesn't ultimately put us at the center of things. We are not uh, the only, we, we are not fully responsible for continuing humanity's existence. We are not uh, fully responsible for making meaning out of life as Darwin or Gore or DeGrasse Tyson might suggest. Verse 6 says that we have been given dominion over the works of God's hands, that creation is under our feet, and yet verse 5 says that we've been made a little lower than heavenly beings. We are not animals, but we are not God. We are in between, made from the same cosmic dust as all of creation. Genesis 1, this is really interesting, agrees with DeGrasse Tyson. The word for son of man used here, uh, Ben Adam, actually means the son of the dust. And yet, uh, as created from the dust of the universe and yet created in God's, the scripture says, moral and spiritual and volitional uh, image. We are responsible. We're unlike anything else in all of creation. We are in between. We are not meaning makers. We are mediators. We're tasked with stewarding life and stewarding creation according to the true purpose for which it was created by God. And that's what gives meaning in life. This has two incredibly important implications for us, at least two. First, you possess a royal and inherent dignity because you are human. Because God made you. You might feel tempted to believe one of the following lies. You might be tempted to believe that nothing matters because I'm just random cosmic space barf. Nothing that I do really has ultimate meaning. Or you might be tempted in, in, in a moment uh, of despair to think that um, I'm too old to be useful. I'm too broken. I'm... Uh, I'm too broken to be used or useful or redeemable. I'm too different to be loved or included. I'm too dumb or I'm too fat or I'm too young to matter to some. But God doesn't measure human worth by utility or productivity or viability. Verse 2 says that out of the mouths of babies and infants, he establishes strength. Even an unborn baby or a dying patient or a disabled person that some might uh, have the audacity to question whether or not they are worth saving has unspeakable worth because they bear the image of God, a God who made them, 
and endowed them with dignity and beauty and worth because he is worthy and he is beautiful and he is good. And verse 5 says that if you are human, he crowns you with glory and honor. You, if you are human, you are royalty. God made you to be a son or a daughter of the king, which is the second implication, right? Second uh, implication is that human dignity and majesty exists within a context. Psalm 8 begins and ends with that phrase, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We were made first and last to be worshipers. Our dignity, our human majesty really only exists within an understanding of God's majesty. We're worshipers so that we can be rulers and stewards. Uh, we can steward creation. We can rule rightly for God only to the extent that we acknowledge that there is a God who rules over us. And that, uh, and, and to the extent that we acknowledge that that is good, that that is a good and right and beautiful way that the creation was made. Whenever and wherever humanity becomes untethered from this idea, there's tragedy. Whenever rulers of men have sought to eliminate any other authority besides themselves and give themselves ultimate authority over history and over other human lives, history tells us stories of atrocities. Whenever or wherever one group of humans has sought to diminish the humanity of, an, uh, of another group of humans we, and see them as less human without God's dignity bestowed on them, we, history tells us uh, stories of prejudice, pogrom, and apartheid. Whenever any one of us, wherever we are, determines that we want to be the rulers of our own lives and refuse to submit to God or anyone else when it comes to stewarding the desires of our bodies or the pride of our hearts or the selfishness that we live with, uh, we find that in that our humanity is diminished and tarnished. We disintegrate ourselves from what we were made to be and we live with shame and with guilt and with pain. And so, what is man? I personally have not found an explanation other than the one offered in Scripture. And here in Psalm 8, that's both philosophically satisfying and consistent with what I see in reality around me. Humanity crowned with dignity and honor to be both worshiper and ruler. And if that is the case, then it begs the question... How are we doing? Certainly, if there's only one true God who is creator of heaven and earth, then you'd have to give humanity mixed marks when it comes to how well we're worshiping and what we're worshiping. We are so divided, so conflicted, so at odds. And as far as stewardship goes, right? Pretty mixed marks. We've done amazing things together eradicating diseases that were once epidemics. Modern medicine has saved the life of somebody that you know. Probably more than once. 
We've harnessed the power of creation to do amazing things from mass food production to international supply chain management, space exploration, FaceTime, emojis. We've done majestic and powerful and beautiful things, but we have not been able to cooperate or educate or technologize ourselves into overcoming evil or greed or exploitation or war or violence or prejudice. And even if, even if Google and Meta and the Target commercials are right, and that the beauty of human ingenuity is going to usher in a utopian age very soon. You and I will probably be dead before it gets here. No human has yet found a way out of death or has someone. Scripture says actually someone has. What is humanity fulfilled? The author of the book of Hebrews was a contestant on Jeopardy. And you ask, what is humanity fulfilled? The book of Hebrews would go on to describe how one man, Jesus Christ, is the only human who has ever been, you might say, fully human. That is, that he is the only one to have truly ever fulfilled the purpose of humanity, existing perfectly as both a worshiper of God and a steward of creation. The only one who can mediate between humanity and God and who can offer us the endless life of dignity and stewardship and worship that we were created for. Here's a paraphrase of what Hebrews chapter 2 says because Hebrews chapter 2 pretty much just quotes Psalm 8. Paraphrase says, God didn't put angels in charge of this business of salvation. In the scripture it says, What is man and woman that you would bother with them? Why take a second look their way? You made them not as high as angels, uh, bright with Eden's dawn light, and then you put them in charge of your entire handcrafted world. When God put them in charge of everything, nothing was excluded. But we don't see that yet. We don't see everything under human jurisdiction. What we do see is Jesus made not quite as high as angels. And then through the experience of death, crowned so much higher than any angel with glory, bright with Eden's dawn. In that death, by God's grace, he fully experienced death in every person's place. It makes good sense that God, who got everything started and keeps everything going now, completes the work by making the salvation pioneer perfect through suffering as he leads all of his people to glory. Since the one who saves and those who are being saved have a common origin, Jesus doesn't hesitate to treat us as family, saying, I'll tell my good friends and my brothers and sisters all I know about you. I'll join them in worship and praise you. And again, he puts himself in the same family circle and he says, even I live by placing my trust in God. I'm here with the children God gave me. 
Since the children are made of flesh and blood, it's logical that the Savior took on flesh and blood in order to rescue them by his death, embracing death, taking it into himself. He destroyed the devil's hold on death and freed all who cower through life, everyone who's scared of death. It's obvious, of course, that he didn't go to all this trouble for angels. It was for people, children of Abraham. That's why he had to enter every detail of human life. Then when he came before God as high priest to get rid of people's sins, he would have already experienced all of it himself, all the pain, all the testing, and would be able to help where help was needed. 